Thanks, Daryl. It's good to be here, but as some of my friends remind me, it's, it's good to be anywhere. Um, and uh, I'm glad to share with you a little bit about what I shared with some of the church leaders um, earlier this month. And I'd felt in uh, recent months that God had been uh, directing me toward the story of Gideon, which is uh, an interesting story with a lot of parts. So what I want to do this morning is share with you basically the story of uh, Gideon in Judges 6 and 7. I won't be so much in chapter 8. And then share with you what I think is relevant from the story of Gideon for our lives, both as individual Christians and as the community of faith, which is more significant than any of us as individual Christians. The story of Gideon starts out when the uh, people in Gideon's day of Israel, they've escaped from uh, Egypt in the Exodus. They've occupied the promised land, more or less. They didn't do everything God called them to do. Then they started worshiping the gods of the people who were already there, and it went very uh, poorly uh, for them. And so God let the uh, enemies begin to oppress them. And among the oppressing enemies were the Midianites. And the Midianites were not stupid. They'd wait until the crops were grown by the Israelites. Then they'd swoop down in mass and, and steal the crops. Uh, and so Israel was not only oppressed, but very, very poor. And becoming hungry, they cried out to God for help. God sent a prophet and said, look, I'm going to tell you why this is happening. You are worshiping other gods. But God said, I will help. And God came to a man named Gideon. Um, and Gideon, uh, because he was so afraid of the Midianites, was uh, threshing um, the grain, which is where you throw the grain up and, and the chaff gets separated from the grain. But he was doing it in a wine press, which is uh, a darker place, more out of the way. In other words, the Midians would never think to look for me here. So in fear, he's hiding from the Midianites, trying to get uh, some sort of uh, uh, crop for that year. God comes to him and he says, basically, well, if, uh, and God says, I need you to help and I need you to go in the strength that you have. And, and he's, kind of, he's like, well, let me make a meal for you. And basically wants God to prove that God is God. So basically God cooks the meal. Gideon prepares it, God cooks it, and uh, so Midian's convinced that he's in the presence of, uh, of, of God, and God said, now here's what I want you to do, I want you to tear down the altars of your father, your family's altars to these uh, false gods. Uh, so Gideon waits until it's dark, when no one can see him, and then he goes and he tears down uh, the altars. Well, the next day, people find out about it, and because they worship the false gods more than the real God, they confront Gideon's father, and they said, well, look. Look what your son did. We're pretty sure it was him. And he says something amazing. He said, look, if Baal, the false god, has got a problem with it, let him do something about it. And he doesn't punish his son. And his son begins to rally the people to attack the Midianites. But he's still a little bit afraid. And so he says, God, if it's really you and you're really calling me, I'm going to put this fleece on the ground. I'm going to put the skin on the ground and uh, let the uh, uh, ground be uh, dry and the skin be wet. And then he, he flips the test and says, you know, let the uh, uh, fleece be um, uh, uh, wet and the, drown, the uh, ground around it be dried. So they do it both ways. And sure enough, uh, God uh, does what uh, Gideon asks. So uh, Gideon calls the troops under the Holy Spirit, comes upon him, he rallies 32,000 to fight the Midianites. God looks at it and says, that's too many. He said, if you win the battle, you'll just think it's because you've got so many troops. He said, uh, I tell you what, tell everybody who's scared to go home. 22,000 leave. And so Gideon's left with 10,000. Well, there's lots of Midianites. We're told they're almost like the sand on the seashore. So, uh, but God said, still too many. 
He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to sort them out for you to get to a, a workable fighting force uh, for me. He said, when you, they go down to, green, to drink water, everyone who, bends on, who gets down on their knees to drink, we're going to rule them out. And everybody who bends over to drink and laps it up with their hands, we're going to rule them in. Well, it just so happens of the 10,000, only 300 drink bending over like this. So the Midianites are like the sand in the seashore, and Gideon's got 300. And God says, go. And Midian, uh, Gideon is still a little nervous, so God says, I'll tell you what. Before you attack, sneak over to their camp. I want you to hear something. So Gideon sneaks over to the camp. And the guys in the Midian, uh, Midianite camp said, man, I had the weirdest dream. And he talked about the dream, about how things fell apart. And his friend um, gives him an interpretation. He said, I know what that means. That means that that Gideon over there is going to come cut us to pieces. That's what that means. And so Gideon hears that even the enemy knows he's going to win. And Gideon goes back, rallies the troops, and they rout the oppressing Midianites with just 300. Well, that's the story. It actually gets worse after that. Gideon gets a little full of himself, but we'll save that for another time. But here's what I want to talk with you about, uh, just some things that I think fit our world in which we find ourselves as a church, uh, uh, the body of Christ trying to advance the kingdom of God. First thing we need to say is, is the people of Gideon's day lived in fear, and I don't think you have to look around very far to see people in our world living in fear. Uh, they may live in fear that they may lose their job at any moment. They could live in fear over uh, what's happening in their family life or with their children, or maybe they're in a hospital and they're in fear of what uh, may get diagnosed. Or maybe they're in fear now every time they go to the airport and get on a plane. But the people in our world, in your world, by and large live in fear and it robs them of the life that God wants them to have. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, the thief only comes to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and hand it in abundance. God doesn't want for us to live and act out of our fear, but that's what's going on. When we go out into the world, you need to know the one thing that characterizes the world you live in is rampant fear. The second thing is uh, that Gideon, though he is small by his own estimation and weak, uh, he's like the smallest guy in the most insignificant tribe. God calls him and says, I want you to go in the strength that you have. One of the things God doesn't wait for Gideon to do is get it all together before he starts to serve God. It's go in the strength that you have. I don't know what kind of things keep you from doing what God's asked you to do. But we've all run into that where we'd say, well, you know, if I can just get my kids through diapers, then I'll serve God. Or if I can get them through school or I can get things settled down at work or things. We always have that uh, idea that when things settle down, we'll do what God meant for us to do and we'll have the life God wants for us to have. Well, I think God knows the secret. If you don't know it, I'll just pass it on to you. If you're waiting for your life to settle down, it never settles down. Never I don't care how old you are and where you are. A good friend of mine is retired, and he's on six boards, and he's volunteering other places. He finally said to me one day, he said, I need to go back to work to get control of my life. Uh, it never slows down. So the only moment that you have to serve God is this moment. It's the only, the only guarantee. The only resources and talents, time, and treasures that you have to give God is what you have right now. Don't wait for your ship to come in. 
It's here, basically, Gideon is told. Go in the strength that you have. The third thing that interests me in, uh, in, in the Gideon story is he's, he's told to uh, go in the strength that he has, but he, he goes in some, um, shall we say, insecurity. And God, through the Holy Spirit, knows that Gideon is insecure and is willing to speak to that insecurity. So when he first shows up for Gideon, he goes ahead and cooks Gideon's dinner for him. So Gideon gets an idea that something's going on. Later, there'll be the fleece. And then later, there'll be that dream in the Midianite camp. If you have concerns about what God is asking you to do, Join the club. We all have concerns. But the good news is God knows your concerns, your fears, your anxieties, your insecurities, and God is willing to deal with them to a point. You may remember the story when God calls Moses. Uh, Moses makes about four different excuses, and finally God says, that's enough. Just go. And there's a point at which I think God uh, listens to our excuses, tries to help us line things up so that we can serve uh, more diligently. But there's finally a point in which God says, look, it's, it's time to go. There's a world that's living in fear, and you have my spirit. What are you waiting for? So I love the way that God addresses the insecurities and fears and tries to help getting along um, with this situation. I also think it's interesting that Gideon uh, must start with his own house. That if God, uh, when God works to change the world, God starts with the people of God first. Looks in their backyard to see what altars are, are hanging around there. And so the very first thing is that Gideon must confront his own family about their worship of the wrong gods. I am convinced that for Alma Heights or any church to be a part of the kingdom of God and be renewed, that it starts with us who are here looking at our lives and bringing our lives in line with what God wants before God is going to send us any further. God's not worried about the people who aren't a part of us. God's worried first about us. Then we can go out to those who aren't a part, who don't know what it is to be involved in God's kingdom. So basically, we have to clean up our own backyard um, first. One of the things I hope you'll be interested in is that all the official leaders of the church for 2010 um, are going to sign a covenant of making some very fundamental commitments about prayer, Bible study, giving, uh, worship, community service. Uh, they're going to make sense so you can know that we're starting with our own backyard first. And we're cleaning up so we can go out in the world. Then uh, the next thing of the story is he's got to go and tear down the altars that is where his father's worshiping these false gods. So I started to think, what are some of the altars that we've inherited from our parents, from people who worship before us? Well-meaning, people who love Jesus. But where might they be worshiping where God may not be calling us to worship? And I have looked at, looked at my own house and my own life, and I want to tell you three things that have had to be torn down in my life. And they're hard to tear down, and I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress. But there are three altars where I've worshipped. The first altar where I've worshipped is, is what I call the, the altar of focusing on the church alone, the internal focus, that the most important thing that God has for the world is what's going on in my church. And everything in the world is measured by what happens in the sanctuary and in the CLC on Sunday morning. And what that has turned me into is, is an accountant. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with accountants, but God wants more than giving an accounting of how many people showed up and how much money they gave and how many square feet we built. 
But in the church, one of the things in places where we've altered is this. What happens is our church needs to be big. It needs to be nice. It needs to be full of people. We must be doing God's will if it's these things. God, I believe, never called us to worship at that altar of success. God never said, I'm going to measure my kingdom by how many people are sitting in these chairs on Sunday morning. That's something I think we invented And we started as pastors bowing down to that. And I'm going to tell you, that's a tough God to worship. Um, And so I believe the first thing God said to me is tear that down. Tear down the internal focus about just what's going on inside your walls and turn your attention to outside these walls. The second thing I think that needs to be torn down is churches, ours included, uh, but churches by and large in Western Christianity, or North American Christianity, if you want to say that, uh, basically focus on a lot of activities for people. We have programs for people of all ages, all stations, uh, uh, both genders. I mean, we, we have everything offered to people, and we focused on the activity and the programs rather than the people who are participating in them. Does that make sense? Let me try it another way. Rather than getting to know people, their lives and their marriages, we throw a marriage conference and think that solves everything. Rather than getting to know uh, people and uh, working with them and walking with them side by side as they try to uh, figure out how to allocate their resources in life, we just have, we'll have a, a budgeting conference and, and they'll figure out how to do it their own and we never work with the people. Rather than get to know our youth and include them as a part of who we are, we have a youth ministry. And they can come on a certain evening and they can occupy a certain wing. We focused on activities and programs, and I think we've missed growing the people who are a part of those programs. We don't do it intentionally. It's just when you throw a program, the focus is on the program and rarely on the people who are part of it. Let me say it another way. I think the altar where we've worshipped is we've gotten pretty good at marketing and, and, and having things for consumers, but we haven't ever asked ourselves, because of Sunday school, because of New Heights, because of the sanctuary, is anybody walking closer to Jesus? Is the world any better place? We never asked those questions. We just said, well, we had church. We had Sunday school. We had the program, and we thought the program would be deliver. I think those altars need to be torn down. Nothing wrong with programs, but we have to, when people are a part of it, we need to get to know them, love them, and walk with them as they walk closer to Christ. And finally, the last altar in my backyard, and this is a tough one to tear down, is we have to understand the more important uh, than how the church is doing is how is the kingdom of God doing in the world. That the important thing is not whether Alma Heights is doing better than the church a mile away or another Methodist church or some other church. The important thing is how's the kingdom of God doing? I don't know, are you all aware? I'm sure Daryl's probably and Michael mentioned. You know what happens in here in, in about seven hours, right? A community Bible church comes in and, uh, and we give them our building here uh, to, to have another worshiping community. And what's behind that is simply this. It's not about our church. It's about the kingdom of God. And if anybody's worshiping God, if anybody's opening a Bible and reading it, if anybody's going out to serve the poor, we're excited whether they do it in our name or not because it's the name of Jesus that counts. But that is a tough altar. So many times we want to measure things by how are we doing rather than by how is the kingdom of God doing. And when we do that, one of the things we do, and this is uh, not an altar um, 
that I've always worshipped at, but I got pretty good at it, is we started doing it the way the world did it. The way the business people told us to run the church is the way we ran the church. The way the marketers told us to uh, publicize is the way we publicized. And, and pretty soon, we had the best church that human beings could build. That has to be torn down. We have to have the church that God builds. Whether or not we market appropriately, whether or not we are run efficiently is not as important by how do we love each other, how do we love the world, how much are we in love with Jesus. Those are the key questions. And then I get to another part of the story which um, uh, interests me, and that is the reduction in force that Gideon has to undergo. You know, because one of the things, when you worship the idol of success and that's who, how many are in the building that counts, when all of a sudden you go from 32,000 down to 300, that doesn't look good on the report to the bishop. It just doesn't. But he undergoes a reduction force, and it's an amazing thing. As God says, look, if you, if you do it by having lots of people in here, then nobody thinks it's me. They all think that it's the numbers. Think about it. Uh, when the rooms are packed on TV, are you thinking how wonderful God is? No, you're thinking, well, they must have a pretty good show. That's a pretty good show. Look, people are laughing. They're smiling. or they're what, Whatever. And it's not necessarily the glory for God and that people really get to know God. I, I love the way he did it. He said, okay, everybody who bends their knees to drink, you're out. Well, scholars is like, what's that about? Not sure, but it could be that God is saying, if you bend your knee to drink, you probably bent your knee to bail the false god. You're out of here. Could be. Another one is this, that people who drink like this are alert and ready. They can move at a moment's notice. So they'll be ready to go out and charge. Josephus, have you, I don't know if you've ever heard of Josephus, Jewish historian, uh, said this. He said one of the things the rabbis said is uh, that people like this are drinking like this because they're ready to get out of Dodge at a moment's notice. And so God may be saying, look, I'll take 300 cowards and whip the Midianites. I don't need your elite forces. Give me 300 who are scared of their own shadow, and we'll, ta- we'll take the world. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, said, give me 100 people who love God and fear nothing but sin, and I will change the world. Friends, through the Holy Spirit, Believe it or not, the Methodists changed the world. Most of Protestant Christianity uh, was influenced by Methodism through, up through about the 19th century because it wasn't about how many. It was the kind of people and the passion they served for God. So what happened? These 300 people, cowards perhaps, brave men perhaps, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, worked with God and God worked through them and they led a whole nation to live in freedom. I was trying to do the math. If Gideon started with 32,000 and was able to make this sort of change with 300, how many would we need at Alma Heights? We have about 5,500. A lot go home because they're afraid. How many do we need? I was thinking about that. Maybe 50. Maybe if 50 people said... I'm going to live for Jesus today and every day, and I'm going to live for Jesus in front of people. I'm not going to do it at night. I'm going to do it in front of people, which finally Gideon had to do. How might our community begin to change? Every year, I speak to the officers of the church and give them some grand plan about what we're going to do in the next year. But this year, I I got nothing. I got no grand plan. 
The grand plan is just this, that what's important is that each of us love God and love each other in everything we do in the coming year. And that God will honor that and use that, I believe, in ways that make a difference. Let me say it another way. The goal this year is not to see if we can bring people back to to the church. The goal is can we bring the church back to the people? Can we take the church to the corners of our community where people are and where they're in need? Can we love them where we find them? If we do that, it won't matter if they come through the door. It would be great if they do. I hope they'll be edified and blessed. But what will matter is will they feel and experience the presence and the love of God in their life through us? I think that's one of the reasons the foundry is so important. Have you been to the foundry? The foundry is an opportunity to just get in the middle of a community and live for Jesus there. And eventually somebody's going to notice. Eventually conversations are going to take place. In the old days, you rented the Alamo Dome and brought in Billy Graham. And people flocked in. They don't do that anymore. They don't want to hear about God in that way. They want to first see God. And they see God in you, where you go. You take Jesus. I don't have any better plan than that. One of uh, my heroes, which sometimes gets me into trouble, is a guy named Shane Claiborne, who uh, lives in Philadelphia. And they've got an intentionally Christian community. They live in a house. Best they can, they live for Jesus. So, for example, on the Sabbath, when the phone rings, they don't answer it. An interesting group, but above the door, because lots of people in that poor neighborhood have needs and they come to the door, above the door is this sign. Today, today it says, do small things with great love or don't answer the door. I wonder if we could put that under the exit signs as we leave this morning. Today, today, do small things with great love, or don't leave the building. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I bless you for your Holy Spirit filling us. I bless you for the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I bless you for the lessons of Gideon. Lord, in this year, may we grow in one area and one area only, our love for you and our love for others. May we serve you and serve this world faithfully and let you take care of the rest. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning.